When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How you doing, Allison? I'm doing well. Oh, I'm going to do a little a little forgotten history show tonight. With a local flavor. <laughs> so it's got to be what? Potatoes and salt. <laughs> <laughs> Horseradish, if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, if you're really lucky. If you're feeling spicy. Mm-hmm. Pepper. Vinegar. <laughs> oh, I could go for some, like... Pot pie with vinegar on it. Mm. You should make us that. <laughs> That's good. Yes, chicken pot pie. The up here variety. Yeah. Which, as we've said before on the podcast, there's no pie to it. Mm-mm. Very deceiving name. <laughs> no, it's the anglicized German. Before anyone writes it, it's the anglicized German bot boy, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. That became pot pie just whispering down the lane. So it is not, in fact, like the pot pie my mother used to make. Which honestly sounds really good. I, I think... For what it's worth... Mm-hmm. I think you would have enjoyed my mother's pot pie mm-hmm. as much as I enjoy the Pennsylvania version mm-hmm. of pot pie, because it was very much like a shepherd's pie with biscuits on top. And but how could you go wrong? There? Yeah, you would love. You would have loved it. Kind I of. feel like we need to bring back a casserole movement because, like, that's like forgotten food. The casserole. I think you're right. It's our, time. Our childhood is gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for <laughs> disgusting casseroles. And here's another disgusting local thing that I remember as a kid. Instead of like your regular, like if you went to like a deli counter and you were going to get lunch meat and stuff. And I don't know if this is something that's available nationwide. And I just presumed by its level of disgustingness that it had to be regional. But like, you know, you might have like uh, roast beef, turkey, your Italian cold cuts and such. But then... There was also like an array of odd things like pickle and pimento. Did you have that? Yeah, we had Did you have the one with the macaroni in it? Not the macaroni. Yeah, see, it would be sitting right next to like... Macaroni loaf, yeah. Yeah, next to like a a bowl of disgusting red beet eggs. (laughs) Is that... That's regional though, isn't it? Red beet beet eggs? I think. I think so. That sounds like a Dutchy way to use up the juice from beets. Now, what about Waldorf salad? That's that came from the Walter Astoria Hotel. Okay, but did you grow up eating it? My mom made it once, and I thought I was gonna love it, but I find it gross. That's the one with the mayonnaise with the over the miniature marshmallows, right? My mom didn't make it with marshmallows, but it was mayonnaise, walnuts, and apples. Yeah, I think. that's yeah. yeah. There were there was one. And this must be another disgusting regional thing. It was a salad, and I'm gonna put salad in quotes, but it was like. It had to do with, like, lettuce and parts of a hard-boiled egg in this, like, soupy yellow... Oh, I don't remember that. ...dressing. I have to find out what that was. Quite honestly, I really liked it, but in retrospect, it seems really gross. But tonight's episode's not about food. This isn't a food episode. It is a a drink episode, though. Yeah, yeah. So these are the libations to have with your disgusting Pennsylvania Dutch food. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. Thank you for your support. Thank you for everything you do to help us make Strange Familiars. If you like what we're making here, if you like the content we provide, and you want to help us continue to make Strange Familiars and get extra content besides, 
You can become a patron. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Our patrons get commercial-free versions of the regular episodes, often before they drop in the regular feed, plus full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month. We try to do two. Sometimes we do one. Sometimes we do more than two. Depends on the month. Sometimes you get a free red bean egg in the mail. We've never done that. <laughs> and nor shall we, we don't actually plan on doing that. The web address is patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you want to sign up there, you can also sign up a subscription through Apple Podcasts and get the extra episodes that way as well. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your help. Again, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right. All right. Going to start back in the 1800s. That's my favorite time to start. Let's drink some whiskey. It helps if you start on the first page of your outline. Yeah. Glen Rock, Pennsylvania holds a special place in my heart. It's the first place I lived in Pennsylvania. I quite love that town. Some of the aspects associated with it sometimes, maybe not so much. Yes. But that might be any small town in America, really. I do think that's true. And mm-hmm. maybe it's the very aspect of being able to know your neighbors on any level mm-hmm. that makes you realize there's certain people you don't want to be with. <laughs> yeah. It's this wonderful little town kind of nestled in a valley. I guess it was originally called Roxing Glen, which makes sense if you're there. A lot of very rocky kind of place. The Cadores Creek cuts right through the middle of town you know, kind of causes this valley and the, and the town is kind of built up on either side of the slopes of the valley of the Cadores Creek there. Outside of Glen Rock, Pennsylvania, there used to be a tall brick smokestack and it was labeled with, in white bricks, had the name Faust on it. We used to use this as a landmark if we were giving people directions to our house. Big, tall, just in the middle of the country, just big smokestack. Interestingly, that smokestack was never used it's funny because it's sort of the most iconic part of this forgotten landscape. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of an, a hopeful part about the, for the future that never happened. Yeah, yeah. It was part of the Faust Distillery when it was rebuilt for use in industrial alcohol manufacturing during World War II. But the war ended before they could get production up and running. So they just really never used that smokestack. The smokestack was struck by lightning twice. Once it knocked it down uh, sometime in the 2000s, and then again in 2012, it was struck again. And at that point, they tore it down. Wasn't it slated for demolition like sometime within the few weeks? Or was it the, the fact that it was struck by lightning that was the impetus for... I think they were going to tear it down anyway, mm-hmm. and it was struck by lightning again, ironically. And it was torn down after, and now there's no smokestack outside of Glen Rock. But that stack marked not only the location of this distillery, but this area called Fausttown. Which is, for all intents and purposes, a ghost town. Yeah, exactly. John S. Faust established a distillery in a little hollow outside of Glenrock, Pennsylvania in 1840. There's a little spring that runs through there. They call it Faust Creek. Not much of a creek, but I guess it was an ideal location for a distillery because he had the creek there. His son William was just four years old when he established this. As his son grew older, father and son worked together until William was 22 years old. They produced an average of two barrels of rye whiskey a day, and Faust rye whiskey quickly became popular throughout the country. Most of their product was taken to Baltimore in horse-drawn wagons as the business increased These wagons would carry 150-gallon hogshead barrels of whiskey from Fausttown, Glenrock, to Baltimore on the York Road, what is now York Road, what they would have called the Susquehanna Trail. Think about that, 150-gallon barrels. How heavy must they have been? Like, that's a lot of whiskey. That'll get you a little drunk. Mm -hmm. Faust made both corn and rye whiskey. Which is better. Supposedly, the rye whiskey. whiskey was better. Is it more of a... I'm not a whiskey drinker, so I don't particularly like it. So I, don't, I can't speak to it personally. But mm-hmm. This is what I was reading. Is this sort of like corn-fed versus... Grass-fed, grass-fed beef. Grass-fed beef. <laughs> is, it the, is it the equivalent? I don't know. 
When William Faust turned 22, he rebuilt his father's still. And he had, they said, like a mind for business that his father didn't have. Because mm-hmm. his father mainly was, uh, and, and like a lot of people in, at that time, they were primarily farmers, but, you know, everybody has a side hustle. <laughs> yeah, they were like homesteading farmers. Like yeah. He, he really carved out the land that William would later develop into this massive business outside of town. And it's still a very, this is a very rural area. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, if you're visiting this part of this, it, there's a stretch when you're driving on Route 216 to kind of get into Glenrock where you look down and you can see where Faustown was, which is, in my mind, perhaps the, one of the most beautiful places in all of our area. It's beautiful scenery. You yeah, you look and look you actually over. literally see the Seven Valleys, where Seven Valleys, the town adjoining it, is mm-hmm. named after. It's just these uh, rolling hills that completely look like the places where all of these Swiss-German people would have come from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can see where it would look like home. William Faust increased production to 3,000 barrels per year by 1907. So they went from two barrels a day to 3,000 barrels a year. I mean, quick math, that's like five times what his dad did, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They said that in the 1800s, before you needed a liquor license or anything, most of these farmers around here would run a still. Mm-hmm. And, you know, make whiskey to sell or... For home use. At least for themselves, yeah. William gets this idea to sort of build up the area around the distillery. He builds a general store and a retail liquor store. In the 1880s, he began adding other buildings and purchasing any kind of new machinery or inventions for distilling. He was kind of on the cutting edge. He was like just anything that could help him with his business. And then he builds this village around the distillery. And it becomes known as Faust Town. I think it's probably a pretty smart move because most of your workers can kind of live right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a model that becomes used by other people during the Industrial Revolution of like people living in manufactured housing made by their employers. And, you know, you buy your stuff at the company store. <laughs> mm-hmm. He builds a grain elevator, several warehouses. One was large enough to hold 3,500 barrels. I'm not sure if these are the 150-gallon barrels or the Mm -hmm. normal-sized barrels. Another of these warehouses was large enough to hold 5,000 barrels of whiskey. They're knocking out production. Mm -hmm. It's helping the entire town. You know, if all of a sudden you have another major employee site. The main warehouse, they said, was six stories high. So You can see it on the old photos. Yeah. Yeah, pretty massive complex they're building here. And they had a hotel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he built a hotel. Because there's a huge, like, ornamental fountain. So they wanted it to look pretty. I mean, they picked a beautiful location. Yeah, yeah. If you drive through it now and there's um, the old Faust homestead is still there, so you can see where, where he, where I guess where Billy and his family, successive generations, lived. Yes. It's a beautiful home. I can only imagine what it looked like when the business was in production and the fountain was going and it was just like a bustling little area. Yeah, especially given that in the Victorian age, everything was designed. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. your industrial machinery had a design to it. It looked beautiful, a lot of it. Like Yeah, it was like um, purposeful, but beautiful too. Like that William Morris maxim about like, don't have anything in your home that isn't useful or beautiful. It's like, it was like an extension of that. I, I, I bought like an antique planer and it's made out of iron and it has this ornamental part on it. It just looks beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah. like this attention to detail and that just as the growth of capitalism and it's sort of unceasing rise towards productivity. It, it's given way to a lack of beauty. Yeah. Yeah. If a plain box will do, I make an ornamental box. Yeah. All of these buildings were heated by steam, which was pretty interesting at the time. They were producing steam. They were just using it to heat the building. They used rye and barley. Some of it was obtained from local farmers, but he had to pay more for it from local farmers. So a lot of it was imported from as far away as Milwaukee. It was cheaper to have people in wagons bring rye from a Well, train at this point, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Faust Springfield Copper Distilled Pure Rye Whiskey was in great demand throughout Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, New York, New England. It even made its way into the southern states and the western states. So I guess it was competing with Jack Daniels. Faust collectibles are... They're very collectible. Yeah, they made some really neat, uh, like, uh, decanters. And yeah, figural decanters that are in the shape of, like, pretzels and different kinds of food. Pickles and stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
There's an aesthetic to it, like to the whole look of the Faust Distillery. For folks product. who are not from this area, mm-hmm. if you ever pick up Faust Distillery stuff, send it to us. We'll sell it for a bunch of money and we'll split the money with you because it's worth a lot here. Yeah, like, here it does go when, for a lot. When Faust stuff comes up at auction here, it goes for serious money. And from my, what I've seen from other bottle collectors, it, it's a pretty nationally known collectible, though. Mm-hmm. Well, they were a nationally known brand yeah. at, at the time. William Faust, as these sort of heads of business do, he became very involved in Glenrock politics and local affairs of all sorts. Yeah, I had read an article about where they they reference Billy and basically his money being able to control the newspaper, the Glenrock item, which then controlled who got coverage during political persuasion. Like, Interesting. Yeah, and he was, he was a Republican, which, you know... As we know, that that meant something totally different in the yeah, 1800s than it does. Flipped, yeah. Kind of flipped, so he would have been, and, and you would have probably had to have been seen as. I'm trying to think of like the way that politics went. Although a lot of the more progressive people also at the same time, like the abolitionists, were also usually big in the temperance movement. So mm-hmm. he he is a bit of a political outlier, being progressive yet, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yet pro drinking, yet pro drinking. I'm saying William Faust, Allison's saying Billy. That's because he's referred to both ways, depending on which articles you read. I like the idea of calling him Billy because, like, you know, it reminds me of Billy the Kid or, like, mm-hmm. the, so many of those sort of, like, wild personalities had these very juvenile names and so on. Yeah. William Faust had four sons who all took up the family business. They all went into... Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah, he kind of had an empire waiting for him. They also distilled a drink called Barley Malt, which was sold both as a drink and as medicine. And they said most first-class drugstores in the country carried the Faust barley malt. For what purpose you would be prescribed barley malt, I don't know. Well. Hysteria. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Basically, alcohol was in every patent medicine at the time. Mm -hmm. This was before um, the government got involved in regulating such things. And so... York has a, I don't want to say proud history, but it's an extensive history. And we talked about it. I can't tell you what episode it was, but about the cop's baby's friend soothing syrup, which was made in York and it soothed babies to sleep with its contents of opium opium and all sorts of sedatives. Probably alcohol and opium in that. Mm -hmm. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention, I thought this was great. They had pigs around Fousttown. Mm Mm-hmm. That they would feed the leftover slosh from the uh, after it had been distilled. Mm-hmm. So there's still alcohol in it. So basically, they had constantly had drunk pigs mm-hmm. in Faustown that would just roam around bumping into stuff because they're eating the mash. Mm-hmm. From- so it's like that episode of Always Sunny where they have the rum ham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have like pre-made rum hams. Basically, they're, they're- <laughs> so these like so a bunch of. I mean, I guess if you're going to run into like sort of a wild hog, you wanted to be a little inebriated because I mean they, they they weren't wild hogs, but they were just they said they were just drunk hogs that they they just fed on the leftover mash and they just be running into the buildings and falling <laughs> down all the time. So just, just it seems both cruel and funny. A whole herd of drunk drunk, drunk pigs, pigs just hanging out in Town. I really feel like that should have been like the school's mascot at Glenrock. Yeah, like the drunk pig. Yeah, the Glenrock inebriated hogs. I mean, it's actually less offensive than what the school's actual... Yeah, Yeah, probably. It's flammable material. They did have fires there in 1909, and then a bigger one again in 1913. Do you want to read the 1913 fire article? Sure. We're getting to some exciting, some really, really exciting stuff about this place. But we got to lay the groundwork. This is from the York Daily, York, Pennsylvania, Friday, July 18th, 1913. Fire partly destroys Faust Distillery near Glenrock. Damage is estimated at $8,000. Blaze originates in engine room. Strenuous efforts of bucket brigades save the warehouse, but lack of water hampers firemen. Fire which originated in the engine room of the Faust Distillery near Glenrock about 1.15 o'clock this morning caused damage estimated at $8,000 which is partly covered by insurance. The origin of the fire is not known. The flames were confined to the distillery, a two-story stone building, the fermenting department, the cistern room, the free or private warehouse, 
and the Apple Brandy Distillery were all in the burned building. The flames were discovered by H.C. Bott, a clerk who had been sleeping in the office and was awakened by the crackling of the flames. He summoned aid at once, and the Glenrock Fire Company and other persons who were attracted to the scene formed a bucket brigade, and after hard work, in which they were handicapped by a limited supply of water, the flames were confined to the one building, although the others were threatened and had caught fire in several places. The only liquor destroyed was that which was contained in the tubs in the distillery. Oof, thank God. <laughs> I, please tell me how much alcohol was uh, properly saved and if any people were hurt. <laughs> the Faust Distillery was established in 1840 by John Faust, father of the present owner. William Faust, who now conducts the distillery, entered the business in 1858. So there's a book called Bottles and Jugs with a York, Pennsylvania perspective, which has some information on Faust in it as they did make many bottles and probably quite a few jugs. <laughs> and they're talking about uh, this fire in the article in Faust in the book. Said, about 500 persons were attracted to the fire. Many of them did help preventing the spread of the flames. When the blaze was discovered, Harry Faust made a record run to Glenrock in an automobile to give the alarm. Engineer Goodling at the Reed Machinery Plant blew the whistle on the engine and the bell on the fire company building, and more than 300 Glenrockers <laughs> hurried to the fire, about 50 going in autos. Amazing there were that many automobiles in Glenrock in 1913. That is a lot. Yeah. Fire extinguishers were taken to the scene, but were not put to use since it was believed at the time the blaze had been conquered. The distilling of liquor at the Faust plant had been conducted for more than 50 years. This was the first serious loss from fire. The original estimate of the loss was $8,000. It was soon raised to $20,000. The final loss to the, to the distillery was between $30,000 and $35,000. That's a big loss for the early teens. Yeah. But it gives you an idea of the size of you know the, the operation. Yeah. And it's amazing because there's nothing there now. You'd never know that there was a town with like... There's nothing there. I mean, there's a couple houses there. But yeah, there's, there's like weird foundations of stuff that you can see. Mm -hmm. And it's been picked over over time. Like I read an article in the newspaper. It makes perfect sense that a lot of scrappers would come by when they need stuff. And they just take part of one of the old buildings and throw it in the back to go mm -hmm. get scrap metal off of it. And I had a friend who lived there and they used to they do paintball there because it was like... Yeah, like ruins. And yeah, stuff they're ruins and stuff. money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big in all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They kept producing whiskey there until Prohibition shut down the operation in 1920 with the Volstead Act. But they had these big warehouses. What and are you going to do when your business is officially shut down from the government? Well, the town fell silent, they said. It just went from super busy town to nothing. Just fell silent. William's son, the Faust brothers, made a deal with a New Jersey film company for Faust Town to become a movie set in oh, the wow. 1920s. No films were ever made, though. But these warehouses, everybody knew about these warehouses. They knew about Faust in the area. And, and there was probably that, stuff still left, right? They knew these warehouses were stocked full of whiskey. And this was too good to ignore. Because imagine how much money during Prohibition suddenly cases of whiskey is worth. Mm-hmm. This takes place in 1921. This is in the in the midst of Prohibition. 
early on, right? Yeah. So did yeah. you write down the dates? Because I, I I can never remember. Nineteen twenty is where prohibition starts. And was it that day? Like, was it J- January first, nineteen twenty? It was in early January. I think it was January sixteenth or something. It was. I remember. Um, yeah, Boardwalk some, Empire. Yeah, it was probably Boardwalk Empire the night before. They had a big prohibition party. I think yeah, in the first episode or something, they're having this big. Yeah, and you see what went from like a legitimate business to quickly being. Entirely underground. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, this is 1921. This is early into Prohibition. Faust becomes this sort of target. This is from the Evening Sun, Hanover, Pennsylvania, Friday, July 1st, 1921. Big whiskey plot unearthed at York. Three men nabbed at Faust Distillery with counterfeit permits. Rudisell has a hand in the case. Four federal charges were proffered yesterday against three men arrested at the Faust Distillery on Wednesday and lodged in the City Hall lockup at York under the greatest secrecy. The men are Robert R. Wilson, 27, William T. Edwards, 27, both of Philadelphia, and Martin McGrail, chauffeur of Tamaqua, and they are in jail in default of $25,000 each as bail for a hearing for liquor violations. $25,000 in the 20s sounds like an insane amount of bail. Mm-hmm. You'd have to be like bootlegging liquor to afford that. <laughs> through their arrest, government officials expect to unearth a gigantic scheme to defraud the United States through the use of forged and counterfeit permits to purchase and take liquor out of bond for alleged medicinal use. <laughs> The information was proffered before U.S. Commissioner S.K. McCall by Herbert E. Lucas, a revenue officer. He charges that the three men at Philadelphia on or about June 21st and from then on to the 29th of June, inconclusive, did willfully and unlawfully conspire together to defraud the United States and try to commit offenses against the country as follows. Charge number one. To counterfeit and forge a government writing in violation of the provisions of Section 28 of the Criminal Code, Second, to impersonate United States government officers in violation of, permission, of provisions of Section 32 of the Criminal Code. And third, to make fraudulent use of the United States mail in violation of provisions of Section 215 and 216 of the Criminal Code. Fourth, to violate the provisions of the National Prohibition Act in attempting to procure intoxicating liqueurs by means of forged and counterfeit permits to purchase, all in violation of Sections 37 of the Criminal Code and contrary to the statutes of the United States in such cases provided. McGrail, chauffeur, faces another charge of minor character to the effect that in Springfield Township, on or about the June 29th, he did willfully and unlawfully transport intoxicating liquor, one eighth ounce bottle, in a Romer automobile, Pennsylvania license number 376776. (laughs) The total bail of the three men was fixed at $76,000. Through their attorney, George Love, they waived a preliminary hearing, and Commissioner McCall fixed July 15th, 2 p.m. Standard Time, for the hearing. It was intimated that this may possibly be transferred to Philadelphia, where it is claimed an alleged conspiracy against the United States government was planned. Prohibition Enforcement Officer Andrew Rudisill, who arrived in York from Harrisburg late yesterday morning with Harvey Smith, Deputy United States Marshal, made the information in the case of unlawfully transporting liquor. It is understood that the charge is purely technical in character and entered for the purpose of retaining the seized automobile in which the young men are said to have traveled. This is reported to, the proper, to be the property of one Cora Kearns of Tamaqua. It is of a sedan type said to be worth $4,750 and is now stored in a local garage. To recover this machine at the present time, Attorney Love was informed by Mr. Rudisill, it will be necessary to post a bond amounting to twice the value of the car, pending disposition of the cast. Should the charge be sustained, the machine becomes the absolute property of the government. If the case is not gained, the machine is to be returned to the owner. While in some quarters a humorous aspect of the case is detected, intimation being that the three men were trying to obtain liquor for the Dempsey Carpentier prize fight, Government detectives who have been working on the proposition positively do not in any way minimize the seriousness of the charges. Rather, it is hinted that a giant conspiracy, which has for its purpose of counterfeiting of government documents with headquarters in this state, presumably Philly, is about to be unearthed. The three men, it is claimed, Wednesday attempted to lift 50 barrels of whiskey from Bond at the William Faust Sons Distillery near Glenrock by means of alleged fraudulent government permits and were then placed under arrest by federal agents. The three men, it is reported, entered the place and presented alleged counterfeits of the government certificates necessary to lift the whiskey. 
One of the men at his charge represented himself as a government agent. The certificates were made out to Robert Shoemaker and Company, reputable wholesale druggists of Philadelphia. On the same date, two calling for 20 barrels each and one for 10. The federal men were on hand at Faust when the youths attempted to carry out their plans and made the arrest. That's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have the perfect plan. Oh, it's the day the federal agents are there. Mm-hmm. That's 1921. Almost exactly a year later. There's another one. This one's a little bit bigger. So this is from July 15th, 1922, just like a little over a year later. Uh, my suspicion is that if this is happening this often that we're reading about, how many little times are people trying to sneak in and just grab a barrel or two? We'll or... hear about that as well. <laughs> Let's go ahead and read this article. Again, this is from the Hanover Evening Sun. Same paper, almost exactly a year later. Faust Distillery robbed of whiskey valued at $181,000. Fifty bandits armed with sawed-off shotguns compel guards to surrender. Mm. Whiskey contained in 181 barrels and valued at $181,000 was stolen from Faust Distillery near Glenrock last night by a gang of about 50 armed and masked men who surrounded the place and compelled the guards to surrender. The whiskey was hauled away in the direction of Baltimore in 16 motor trucks. It was the third visit of whiskey bandits to the distillery within three weeks. On the two previous occasions, the guards drove them off by shooting at them. The story of the robbery was told today by the guards, George Strine and Joseph Henry, both of York. According to these men, a gang approached the distillery about 11 o'clock and tore a screen off a window in the office. The guards then accosted the strangers from within. We're here for business this time, and if you resist, we'll blow up the whole works, was the warning which the guards declare was hurled at them from the outside. A consultation then ensued between Messrs. Strine and Henry, and they say that when they looked out of the window, masked men armed with sawed-off shotguns were to be seen everywhere. It did not take them long to make a decision. Safety first, whiskey afterwards, <laughs> was their motto, and they unlocked the door. Several masked men then rushed in and disarmed the guards. The lock on the door leading to the warehouse containing the bonded whiskey was then sawed off, after which some of the men rolled out 181 barrels while others stood guard. Wow. After loading the 181 barrels on the trucks, which was all the machines would hold, the bandits started off in a southern direction, the two guards declared. Besides the 181 barrels of whiskey stolen, there were 135 additional barrels in the warehouse. Lack of hauling facilities prevented the bandits from taking these. (laughs) While the robbery was being staged, the guards said, that the telephone rang and they were compelled to answer it with instructions to be careful with what they said. The call was from a York newspaper, which inquired whether everything was all right, as was their nightly custom. The guards were ordered to answer in the affirmative. The previous night, a man driving a truckload of whiskey was taken into custody at Stewartstown and placed in the borough jail. He broke jail, however, and the cargo of whiskey disappeared with him. The truck, however, was left in Stewartstown and is now believed that the man was a member of the gang of bandits and that they assisted him to escape and took the whiskey with them. The license number on the truck, which is a a Maryland issue, and the make of the machine will furnish clues, it is believed, that may lead to the arrest of the bandits. How frightening. Just to look out and see 50 masked men with sawed-off shotguns, and you know that you're only two guys, and you're supposed to protect them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of legends around this particular holdup. Did they find the whiskey? One of the legends, and I don't remember where I heard this because it's not in the article in the bottle book and it's Mm -hmm. not anywhere else, but I very much remember this. And I don't know if this was just a legend in my neighborhood growing up or something that that I remember hearing. There is a legend that one of these barrels of whiskey is buried, barrel or barrels, Mm -hmm. large barrels. I'm wondering if it was one of those huge 150-gallon barrels Mm -hmm. because the legend was a huge barrel of whiskey was buried on the farm just south of the Mason-Dixon line in Maryland. Hmm. And I remember here, and I cannot place where I heard this legend, but I remember specifically hearing this legend and then going, oh, it must have to do with that raid. Mm -hmm. So these were mobsters, right? Well, the legend was it was a Baltimore mobster who became aware of this and that he was so unafraid of being caught that he let word get out about the raid. Supposedly everybody around knew, knew it was going to happen. Knew it was going to happen. The police came out and quote unquote investigated it. Mm-hmm. Found nothing, like nothing to see here, but they said there were camps of guys like all around the area from 
you know, Shrewsbury and Stewartstown, all around the area, these camps of guys with these trucks just waiting for them. And they were, is this the, the, the time that they used military trucks and they were dressed in military? Or is that another raid I'm thinking? I of? think that might be another raid because I don't remember hearing that one. Yeah, there's another one where they they use military cargo vans so they're it's not as suspicious and they dress wow. as military men. Wow. No, I I think this is this is different yet. They just must have been a total sitting ducks because there's not really there couldn't have been a lot of police presence in the area. It's such a rural area. Yeah. It's it's c- totally conveniently located. It's hard to get to now, right? Yeah. For police, you yeah. know, to get if there's something happens. So the legend was it was a Baltimore mobster that basically arranged it. And he let the word get out because he thought, oh, more people will come help us then. Like, mm-hmm. more locals will come help us do this. Prohibition was not popular. Why should they get to sit on all that alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll go ahead and read again from the article from Bottles and Jugs with a York, Pennsylvania perspective. The old distillery was a familiar landmark for York Countyans since 1840, and especially during the roaring days of Prohibition, During this time, it was the site of dozens of raids led by bootleggers from York County. Some of the small forays consisted of only two or three men who had their own special entrance to the big Faust liquor warehouse. The looting that everyone talked about was the big raid of 1921, when a gang, led by a Baltimore gangster, got away with almost 300 barrels of the best firewater the Faust family had ever made in pre-Prohibition days. It wasn't exactly a secret that the big raid was going to take place, People from York to Baltimore knew about it. They even knew approximately what time the dastardly act was to take place. But almost no one, except the owners of the distillery, tried to stop it. Harry Faust, nephew of Fred Faust, of William Faust's son's fame, reported that when they got wind of a raid on the warehouse had been planned, they notified almost every law enforcement officer in York County, from the local constable to the highest-ranking federal official, in an effort to get it stopped. Fred Faust said, it may have been because the police were shorthanded at the time or any number of other reasons. Like they were in on the take, yeah, of course. They, yeah, they don't want to mention that in this book. And we'll talk more about that as well. But they made a small investigation of the rumors and reported that they could find no grounds to fear a raid on the liquor warehouse from any source. And they dropped the whole matter right then and there. At the time, both Harry and Fred Faust believed that if there had been a more thorough investigation of the surrounding countryside, the officers would have found several camps of men, as well as huge enclosed trucks here and there along the roads, which led from Stortstown to Shrewsbury and along the York Road, currently known as the Susquehanna Trail. The law enforcement officers did, after all, come to grief. Over the past 75 years, the story of the big raid has taken on aspects of a folk story. It will probably go on forever. As the story goes, handed down by the old-timers in the area, the raid was masterminded by a Baltimore gangster who had connections in the Glenrock area. He sat in his big easy chair in the Maryland city while his gangsters carried out his orders here. Trucks were procured and both drivers and helpers were recruited from both Maryland and Pennsylvania. For a week or more, the raiding party camped out along the back roads. The word began to spread, which was what the big boss wanted. He felt they would get more help that way. On the first Friday of March 1921, which isn't, that date isn't accurate. Yeah. Yeah. The party began to move over the various roads leading to the distillery. Everything was planned perfectly and the raiders were congratulating themselves on the smoothness of the operation. Things were working out exactly as the big shot in Baltimore had planned it. This initial success was short-lived, as the leaders of the raid received word that one of their large vans had broken down near Stortstown and was hauled to a local garage to undergo repairs. See, I wonder if this is that part of the story you read about the other truck. Yeah, they're kind of conflating. I think because this happened with such regularity that like, probably the the, the legend gets changed exactly, or yeah. morphed into one legend yeah. of 50 different incidences. Not wanting to lose even one truckload of whiskey, the leaders called a halt to Operation Whiskey and rescheduled the raid for the next night. Oscar Stoner was the York detective who trailed the gang to their hideout in a big barn near the Maryland line and captured them and part of the loot. However, records didn't indicate if the whiskey made it back to Billy's warehouse. I bet Oscar Stoner sold some of that. <laughs> Fred Faust, in speaking of the aftermath of the raid, said the government never did recover all of the whiskey, which was taken by the gang. The rumor of the time was that many of the big barrels were buried. Okay. Okay, maybe that is where you... Faust said the government made the Faust family pay more than $12,000 in taxes on the stolen liquor. They hired a lawyer and brought action against the government to recover the money. They won the case, but had to spend about $2,500 in attorney fees to do so. So, yeah, lots of things were happening there. 
like you said, there's little local raids that are going on. They said these guys had a way into the warehouse. They just would, you know, kind of go in behind these bushes and take out one or two barrels at a time. Plus, I'm sure there were plenty of people who worked there who were easily bribed. Totally. On I the- mean, at this point. So another article you read mm. suggested that there wasn't any liquor in those barrels after all, that it had been replaced with water. I think that's total hokum. Yeah, and I think that was something that the Faust's company wanted everyone to think. Either that, it was a plant saying, basically saying, look, there's no more liquor left. There's mm-hmm. just water here now. Or it really was replaced with water because either the employees were selling it on the down low or honestly, when the cops came in and they're like, well, we don't know what happened to it. <laughs> they're selling it. Yeah. They're selling it. There was so much money in it back then. Mm-hmm. They were selling it too. I think everybody was using this warehouse as a, basically as a bank account at yeah. this point. So William Faust died on March 3rd, 1920. So right in between these, or right around the time of these two different raids. Yeah, he had already, um, he retired in 1909, and that's when his sons took it over. John Quincy Adams Faust. (laughs) Supposedly, William Faust was having a drink of Faust whiskey at the Mm -hmm. time, and someone said to him, hey, that's against the Volstead Act, because prohibition had already passed. Mm. And William replied, and so am I, and then he died. Oh, that's a lovely idea. Yeah. yeah. Sure, it's not true at all, but... They tried various times to keep get the business up and running. For a while, a Westminster, Maryland distillery was using just the bottle works. They were just having their stuff bottled there. Other people tried to take over. And they had actually worked with the government later on after Prohibition. Well, they tried to in World War II, but they never got it up and running. That's what that smokestack was. But they were, they were they sold the liquor to the state stores, it said, in the, mm. in the 30s. That was after it was bought. They were still using the Faust name, but it was bought by other people. Oh, okay. And they made a run at it for a while. And then there was a whole succession of people that made a run at it. For a while, like the Faust name was being used by other distilleries in the area, just kind of making whiskey. When those people bought it in the 30s, they actually hired one of the Faust kids to come back because he had his grandfather's recipe for oh, yeah, how yeah. to make the mash. Had to do with taking water from that spring down there from the Faust Creek. Oh, and, and mixing it in a back when it was probably pure and yeah, yeah, exactly. Not part of what later would become the inky, stinky Cadoris. It went bankrupt sometime in the fifties, but I think they were still at least trying to make it work up until the sixties when they. they it makes sense was. because, like, and then everything just stopped. It just stopped again, yeah. and everything just started to. There was no one there to keep up all the buildings, and they just started to go into disrepair and just. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the houses down there have been well-kept the whole time. Oh, yeah. I'd uh, love to live in Town. It's so pretty. It's yeah. such a pretty little hamlet there. It's it's beautiful. And if you're doing a day trip of, like, if you're going to go to Hex Hollow, if you're going to go to Ray Myers Hollow, mm-hmm. this is really close. Oh, yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, all you have to do is, like, this is such a round here thing. Go to, put, take a, take 216 down to Potosi and then go over to Ray Myers Hollow. <laughs> <laughs> in 1979, they decide to demolish the industrial buildings there. And when they do, they discover this cornerstone in one of the buildings. And inside it, they find a corncob pipe, a penny from 1909, a nickel from 1913, a key, a one-half pint bottle with the Faust label. Uh I don't know if it was full or empty. And a copy of the National Liquor Dealer's Journal from July 23rd, 1913. It's kind of like a time capsule. Oh, that's of cool. All the stuff they found. Now, they said there might be significance to the penny from 1909 and the nickel from 1913 as the two years of the, the bad fires there. Oh. But they're not sure. And this was just accidental. Like, no one knew this was there. No one knew it was there. They just, oh, that's as so cool. As they're knocking down the building, they found this. And where are those contents now? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. Does Glenrock have any kind of historical society? Well, it's got the library. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe it's there. We also referenced Glenrock previously because in the episode where um, in the 70s, my mom interviewed all the people about the powwowing tradition in York County. They were all in the Glenrock. Mm-hmm. Was it the fire hall? Like where the, the, um, the community center. The community center. It was like a time when the old, mm. when, uh, the old people were gathering together. Yeah. They were Which was going. still there when we lived there. I don't know if it is anymore. But the community center? Yeah. I don't remember where that was. Um. So here's the library. Yeah. Here's the railroad tracks. Yeah. It was like around here, like uh, across from the Glenrock Mill. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, now there's an area, there's a cool park called like Ruins Park. Ruins Park, yeah. Yeah, it used to just be ruins. <laughs> there was, um, I have a Alice Gerard, the uh, old time singer. I think it was her. I don't think it was the New Lost City Ramblers. I think it was her or her and Mike Seeger. I have a live recording of them at the Glen Rock. Well, didn't Mike Seeger Senior Center? Um, they lived in Glen Rock for a while. They lived out, yeah, right outside of Glen Rock. Yeah, yeah this is Pete Seeger's brother, mm-hmm. who was also a um, yeah. folk musician. One of the other New Lost City Ramblers lived outside of Red Line. So, yeah, they used to kind of inhabit this area. Yeah, that's the thing when you learn about history. You're like, why was, why was my area so much cooler before I lived here? <laughs> <laughs> That happens with York too, where I'm like, man, York in the 1850s would have been amazing. Yeah, York- even even York, like at different times, York had more things going on. I, I think it's a matter of um, there's always something going on everywhere if you yeah. if you look. Yeah. I know how much you like an on-theme Curiosity of the Week. Yes, and this is also coupled with the fact that I'm a disorganized mess. Right. So I... we think <laughs> we think we what we're going to have for the Curiosity of the Week is some Faust labels, some actual labels. I, I don't, do they show the old distillery on the label? I forget what's on the label. I can't remember, but it... There are different ones you can get, and I think these have the year, like the year of how many years they've been doing this particular kind of whiskey on mm-hmm. them. Granted, we find these labels. <laughs> we will put a picture of them in the show notes, and if you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase these labels. I'll probably put, if we have five up, I'll probably put all five up. And you can purchase these labels and other curiosities of the week, those that still remain. There's usually not a lot of branding left to collect from ghost towns, so that's yeah. like the, the kind of cool thing about I was very excited when we found these because, like I said, these these Faust bottle. Like when we go to local auctions, anything Faust comes up, forget about it. Yeah, there are a lot of Faust collectors. Oh yeah. I mean, and who wouldn't want to collect? I mean, it's got such a great storied history. That's like yeah. When so when we moved to Glenrock, the tower was still standing, and I had taken a photo of it, and I was planning on doing a T-shirt just of the old the old tower with the Faust letters mm-hmm. on it. I really wanted to do like a silkscreen t-shirt, especially after the tower was knocked down. I have to find that photo. It's it's somewhere. It's somewhere. It's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Good luck to the kids after we're dead. <laughs> <laughs> they might find those labels. Yeah, they might find the labels. <laughs> if we can't find the labels, there'll be no curiosity of the week, but you can still go to our Etsy store and still purchase stuff from there to help us out. The Etsy store also helps fund the show and helps us keeping strange familiars in production. Thanks for everybody who's purchased stuff from Etsy. If you want to check out our wares there, we have Strange Familiars t-shirts. Right now we have Glow in the Dark and Classic Blue of the Awoken Tree Strange Familiars logo. We have a pretty large variety of sizes, I think, still, especially in the blue. Uh, we might be getting a little more limited in the Glow in the Dark, but I think we still at least have small through through XL in the Glow in the Dark. Check that out with the t-shirts. We got Strange Familiar stickers and patches, artwork, some of my artwork from the show is there. Prints of my artwork, originals are there. You've been doing some remark editions of things? Yeah, I've been doing little remarks in some of my art books and putting them up there. They sell pretty quick, but I'll try to do some more, maybe have some up by the time the show airs. So if somebody wants to get a one-of-a-kind remark edition in one of my art books, they are available. All of my books are there, my art books and my regular books, such as Beyond the Seventh Gate, and don't look behind you, where I get into local legends. Faust not being in there, though. Now, if a Bigfoot walked through Faust Town, that would be... I looked so hard for any ghost stories. <laughs> there and... are there are Seven Valleys Bigfoot sightings, though, which is like the neighboring town. There, there are Seven Valleys. I have collected one big... No, two Bigfoot sightings in Glenrock. One from the 1950s, where someone said a gorilla, quote-unquote, was attacking their livestock. I think they said it killed a calf, I believe. I'll have to dig out the report. Cattle mutilations. <laughs> yeah, right. Another, a person contacted me specifically and told me the story, I think it was in the 80s, about, uh, you know, that little trailer park outside of Glenrock, between Glenrock and Railroad? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You go, like, under the bridge there, yeah. yeah you go I, around a corner. Yeah, they, had, they were dating someone who lived in that trailer park and had a pretty neat encounter with a creature that kind of followed him around in the, in the area, the woods kind of behind that trailer park. 
So two Bigfoot sightings. Actually, no, there's one more. That little cave that's also between Glen Rock and Railroad. Bob Chance had taken a report of a creature. I think it might have even been a white creature in that cave. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we we explored that one time. It doesn't actually go back that far. It's not very deep at all, but the legend was that it it originally went back further or something. And it could have. It could have. We didn't go too far in. um... No, I don't think think we could have gone in any further than we did. Yes, actually three Bigfoot reports from Glen Rock. At least one or two of those is in Beyond the Seventh Gate, but nothing on Faust. I want to hear more about the drunk pigs, actually. Yeah, right. (laughs) Also at Etsy, uh, let's see my books, artwork, I said. Allison has antique photographs, a different variety of things up there, and some other miscellaneous. Just go ahead and check it out. Oh, and the flower pass section, I have the handmade rosaries, which have been selling really well as well. So I make those by hand. Hence the handmade. Paracord rosaries, very tough, very rugged, very cool, I think, Mm -hmm. think, as rosaries go. They're like a good, strong... Hiking rosary. <laughs> if you need, you don't want your rosary to break when you're out on the trail. True, true. Plus, I think they look really cool. They do. Our shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in strange familiars, you should see our stuff come up. What else is new? Is there anything else? You can also visit our shop with Chad in Hanover. Oh, yes. Yes. How could I forget? <laughs> the rapidly growing antique empire. Black Rose Antiques in Hanover. Chad has stuff there. We have stuff there. My books are there. A lot of uranium glass there. For, yeah, I have for, a, lot, a lot of glass over there. For our uranium glass fans. Got some paranormal books that I did not write over there as well. A lot of like ghost books and stuff I have over there. So you can pop in there and check out some of that stuff. That's at Black Rose Antiques in Hanover. And then at American Daydream Antiques in York. You've got lots and lots of stuff there as well. My books are, are there as well. Currently we have a Oddfellows Ritual Coffin. I would like that to sell because it takes up a lot of real estate. So if you're in the market for a coffin, and I don't need to tell you that it, we're getting towards the end of August, and you're That's gonna right. want to, you're gonna want it soon. Rumor has it that there's now a skeleton inside that coffin. There is. Yeah, it's plastic, but a skeleton nonetheless. It does glow in the dark. Yeah. So yeah, you can get that there, and and you've recently lowered the price. So yep. it's, it's a heck of a bargain for a coffin. <laughs> I challenge you to find a coffin at a cheaper price. Exactly. <laughs> How much is it going to take for me to get you into this coffin today? <laughs> That's at American Daydream in New York. Check out Allison's stuff there. We're going to be doing more of the Bigfoot in Pennsylvania shows for our patron shows. So if you're into Bigfoot and you're into Pennsylvania, what more could you want? Two Bigfoots in Pennsylvania? Well, there'll be multiple. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. We also have the new Stone Breath album, Grays and Orphans, there, which has the theme to Strange Familiars, the full theme. You get the full, you only hear a snippet of it at the beginning, even when I play the longer version mm-hmm. sometimes. It's just part of it. You get the full Strange Familiars theme, which is called Gray One along with two other instrumentals in the same vein, Grade 2 and Grade 3, some unreleased tracks from Stone Breath and other projects I've done. That's Grays and Orphans. Entity Drift is available again as a CD. That's all the ambient music I made for Strange Familiars. So you can pick those up at the Stone Breath Bandcamp page. You can also find some of my books there as well, Elzik's Farewell, the new art book, etc. Stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can join the Strange Familiars gathering group there. We're on Instagram, at Strange Familiars. Give us a follow. Like every single one of our posts. (laughs) And we're on the web at strangefamiliars.com. Beware.
place for a mouse to peep in. almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement whether mom's into classic dress watches rare and refined ceramics or tried and true bestsellers movement has something she'll love and right now you can save big on the best mother's day gift ever with up to 50 percent off site-wide during movement's mother's day sale at mvmt.com again that's up to 50 percent off at mvmt.com Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.